ਦੇ ਦਿਲ ਪਰਦੇਸੀ ਨੂੰ ਤੈਨੂੰ ਨਿਤਦਾ ਰੋਣਾ ਪੈ ਜਾਊਗਾ ਨਾਲ ਰੰਜੇਟੇ ਜੋਗੀ ਦੇ ਤੈਨੂੰ ਜੋਗਣ ਹੋਣਾ ਪੈ ਜਾਊਗਾ everyone welcome to flywheel your number one source for everything frax defi and everything in between if you want to know what's going on in the world on chain you've come to the right place this is defi dave here with capital k and we're here to help you harness the power of the flywheel and this time around we go to a different level of the flywheel we go to breaking the trilemma with a uh, eigenlayer in shiram kanan uh you know we break down this entire episode in our post game and I encourage everyone to stick around for that. Kit, this was a massive episode and in Sam's own words, our best episode yet. So, like what are your thoughts? I mean, everything I do and all my performance on the flywheel defi is just to improve our just to impress our pro- ex- producer extraordinaire Sam. So, I'm very happy <laughs> that he's happy. <laughs> just to make uh, him happy. Yeah. We yeah, do all this. Uh, but- yeah. In, in, in all honesty, everybody bust out your notepads, take notes. This is such a brain jujitsu warping pod. So yeah. I, I, you must take notes on this one. And I highly yeah. recommend you guys think and deep re- about where Ethereum is going to go. And also and check out our post game if you don't yeah. feel like thinking and we do the thinking for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, like even though this is a you know episode about infrastructure, it really gets down to the core ethos about Ethereum. And what attracted to Shiram to the Ethereum community, and you know, we get into it the entire interview. We share our thoughts in the post game, um, really deeply. Sam has a bunch of insights. Sam was super excited. So if you want to see him hyped up, definitely like go down to the post game, subscribe. If you want to keep up with everything at Flywheel, subscribe to our YouTube. Let us know what you think in the comments. Hit that bell button. Never miss a video. We've been pumping out content recently. Uh, don't forget to join the conversation on Telegram, Flywheel DeFi. Follow us on Twitter, Flywheel DeFi. You can follow me on Twitter at DeFiDave22. You can follow me at 0x capital underscore K. And let's get the flywheel spinning. Do you hold ETH but don't know what to do with it? Want to earn those juicy liquid staking derivative yields but don't know where to start? Well, Frax ETH is there for you. Frax ETH is Frax's native LSD solution, allowing you to earn boosted yields in multiple ways on your ETH. If you want to get started, Go to app.frax.finance and turn your ETH into Frax ETH today. Thank you, everyone, for joining this episode of Flywheel DeFi. Today we have on Sriram Kanan, the founder and chief architect of Eigenlayer. Sriram, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, uh, Dave. Thank you, Kit, for hosting me here. Looking forward to this chat. Yeah, and I feel like this has been a few months in the making because... Eigenlayer has like mm-hmm. been one of those things that we've been hearing about um, throughout, like, I feel like for six, seven, eight months now, uh, keeps popping up. People are like, what is it? I've read multiple articles on it, trying to explain it. And for the longest time, it didn't click with me. And then it wasn't until uh, I was with uh, somebody that you've talked to in the past, uh, Chase Zimmerman, who explained it to me very elegantly, showed me your interview with, uh, or your presentation with A16Z. And I'm like, oh, so that's what Eigenlayer is about. So, mm-hmm. you know, let's get in like very quickly, like in like one sentence or in like a few sentences, 
how would you describe Eigenlayer and, you know, why is it so important? Eigenlayer is a mechanism by which Ethereum stakers can offer to provide other services. It's a mechanism by which Ethereum stakers can offer to provide other services. And what do I mean by other services? You can think of, let's say I want to run an Oracle. Let's say I want to run a data storage network. Let's say I want to run a new kind of a consensus protocol. Let's say I want to run a multi-party computation, like a secure multi-party computation. Any of these new things, today, what you have to do is you have to go and spin up your own decentralized trust network. You have to get a set of validators. You have to get a bunch of capital committed to actually serve that particular application. And this is a huge amount of friction for people who are innovating at the distributed systems level, like inventing protocols and making them more efficient. And the ability to invent protocols is very different from the ability to build a community. And so these are two distinct aspects. And today, unless you combine the two and go build a whole new layer one or something, it's not possible for you to express your creativity in just the distributed system side. And Eigenlayer allows you know, builders to come and deploy their new ideas for how to build new decentralized distributed systems, but borrow the distribute decentralized trust of Ethereum rather than having to create it from the first principles. Kit, I'll let you uh, take it. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I, I actually want to take a step back before the idea of Eigenlayer kind of came about. Could you share with us a little bit, a little bit about your background? Yeah, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> I've been a faculty member at the University of Washington, Seattle, and uh, I joined the university primarily to work on computational biology. So I, uh, my postdoc, my PhD way back, master's and PhD between 2006 and 11 was on peer-to-peer -peer wireless systems. So I, oh. I'm a kind of like a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, enthusiast for a long time, but uh, the, the, aspects of peer-to-peer -peer wireless network did not really take off and we see much more infrastructure deployments. So our thesis was developing countries and other places. You don't need infrastructure, it's expensive. Can you just create a network where nodes talk to each other and then spread information? Um, but uh, that paradigm did not become uh, a reality. So after my PhD, I switched to doing computational genomics. DNA, RNA sequencing. I was a postdoctoral wow. researcher at Berkeley and Stanford and then moved to University of Washington primarily to work on, you know, genomic stuff. And uh, till 2018, when my PhD advisor called me and he was like, hey, you know, uh, do you, uh, have you heard of this Bitcoin and there's some stuff going on there? <laughs> I said, no. And I was very dismissive of it as some kind of a speculative bubble. And he's like, no, no, you know, the technical problems there are very similar. We, you know, there is a throughput problem, latency problem. This was my PhD thesis was throughput and latency of peer-to-peer -peer wireless systems. And it's like, we can do all those fun stuff again. I was somewhat tempted, <laughs> but... Uh, he's like, come on, we'll bring you back in. Come on. <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, he's now at the Princeton Blockchain Center. He's a really good guy. Anyway, so I, I, as tempted as I was technically, I had switched to computational genomics because what I saw as its like net impact to human civilization mm -hmm. and society, right? Like, you know, crazy things going on in synthetic biology, 
You right. can reprogram organisms. You can reprogram our genomes. You know, this is a project right. I didn't want to miss. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I was working on that because of that understanding and uh, didn't want to switch out just because there's some technical thing that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, I, as I was thinking through, like, really what could be the use of blockchains, um, one of my, like, uh, core mental models, which I got from Yuval Noah Harari in his book, Sapiens, he says humans mm-hmm. are, have taken over this planet because of our ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers, cooperate flexibly in large numbers. So, mm. you know, the ability to cooperate mm. flexibly in large numbers is the defining evolutionary advantage of humans. And as you think through that, it's obvious that the friction to cooperation is trust, right? I'll cooperate with you if I know how the fruits of such cooperation are going to be divided, you know, how much trust do I need for it? If I can reduce the trust frictions, then like, you know, cooperation can can be massively enhanced. Mm-hmm. So my mental model became just like the internet is the information superhighway. We just the presence of the internet uniformly improves like all kinds of research in everything, right? Innovation in all dimensions because information flow, the rate of information flow determines the rate at which we can play off of each other's ideas. And once that has gone up and, and we see this like in, uh, you know, uh, in every research field, the pace of research just like massively accelerated. And I think of like blockchains and crypto as a cooperation superhighway, just like the internet is the information mm-hmm. superhighway, mm-hmm. crypto is the cooperation superhighway. It lets us cooperate with each other at a much higher velocity. Once you upgrade the velocity of cooperation, you can kind of do crazy things that were simply impossible before. And uh, so I, once I got it, got this thesis, then I could simply not, not, uh, work on it so i had to <laughs> drop everything else and from 2018 mill because it aligns with me psycholo- you know uh, technologically it aligns with me like in a in a philosophical mm-hmm. manner so i can kind of bring my entire suite of thoughts into it so i just switched completely from whatever other things i was doing including i was having projects with the national institute of health national human genome research wow. institute and so on wow and then switched into Working on basically. Damn, people must have thought you were crazy. They're like, wait, you have like all these different things going on, doing all this great work in the name of biology and health, and you're dropping it off to do blockchain? And like back in 2018, yeah. like what was yeah. the reaction? Even now, got? like, even <laughs> now, many Especially- of my colleagues think <laughs> <laughs> I'm a nutcase and uh, yeah. I've gone off the rack rocker and trying to. Um, participate in this community. In fact, when, whenever, when I was doing academic research on blockchains, the thing that we used to get from the National Science Foundation and other places when you write a pro- grand proposal saying, mm-hmm. hey, I'm going to improve the thing. And then the, sometimes we'd get responses saying, why are you trying to create technologies <laughs> for these gamblers and drug addicts? <laughs> wow. The, that's it. That's the kind of, it's, you know, that's the perception from the outside. And, mm-hmm. but I actually, you know, spend enough time inside, you know, that actually this is one of the most amazing places where there is, um, there are people working to improve the, you know, funding mm-hmm. for the commons. There is the idea of financial infrastructure for everybody. There is the idea of permissionless innovation. There is the idea of the sovereign individual, some very basic philosophical underpinnings that I think people outside have no clue about. Right. Yeah. Um, right. Are there 
are there other influences uh to you getting into blockchain and working on the eigen layer other than sapiens the mental model uh, that drove me was the sapiens mental model but mm-hmm. uh, like i said my advisor uh, mm-hmm. former phd mm-hmm. advisor basically pulled me in and we constructed a small team of uh professors he was there i was there there was a professor from stanford david che who was also my postdoctoral advisor he and i worked on computational genomics for many years mm-hmm. and oh, all wow. of us switched then mass into into working on blockchain <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah yeah and i'm wondering um yeah, cuz you used to work in and study uh biology um what similarities are there uh between you know biology and blockchain like do you see similar things in like evolution um i'd love to hear your take on that yeah you know one of the most interesting takes mm-hmm. is on innovation okay the mm-hmm. paradigm of innovation that you know many people have in their mind is something like you know there is this genius and he comes up or she comes up with this great idea and then that just you know revolutionizes some field and you know it's easy this is a easy story to tell it's a story that we can all understand and say oh it's attributed mm-hmm. to that person but matt ridley in his book on uh uh how innovation works or something i think in the in in that book he makes this case that innovation is actually much more like evolution than it is like uh like uh, intelligent design right it's not one guy coming up with this like amazing idea it is that there is this external like selector which is the yeah. environment which selects for good ideas people mm-hmm. play random variations on top of other people's ideas and we see something's fit and like they achieve that fitness and once something achieves that fitness it propagates massively and you know compete with other things that achieve the same fitness so the idea of innovation as an evolutionary process rather than as a kind of eureka moment of one individual i think it's very very important for us to understand because once you have that mental model the way mm-hmm. you would incentivize and permit innovation to flourish is by letting many people compose pieces of innovation one on top of the other i come up with an idea and then you play off on top of it and yeah. then like you know mm-hmm. and then this goes back and forth in a ping pong yeah. and you can see nowhere else this running in such clarity as you would see for example in defi right take this right. guy's oh, idea yeah. take that build this block fork that, that fork com- that fork that compose yeah. with that and like build on top of it yeah this is such an amazing crazy idea that yeah. so i i call you know we call this permissionless innovation right in in our space of right. composable innovation but i think this is a paradigm shift the idea that so where is the paradigm shift happening you know of course always people used to play off of other people's ideas right so that is always there and to the extent that things are open of course we can do more of it and there is one aspect of it which is in blockchain the idea that not only the source code is open but the state is open so you can kind of compose on top of that state rather than only composing on top of the source that is there but there is i think something else that we distilled out as i think one of the amazing things that's happening in blockchain and this is this is particularly bordering on the transition from bitcoin to ethereum the idea of separating trust and innovation let me explain what what how we think about this the idea that as an innovator i don't need to be trusted okay if if you bring this idea that 
anybody who's innovating on, let's say I want to create a Web2 financial service, right? I create this like derivatives or whatever, or run an exchange or run FTX or whatever, right? Like you, you, you need to trust me and my team and this company and to actually, you need to trust us. We are the innovators, but we're also the trust source for that particular like financial services. Mm-hmm. And if you don't trust me, you should not deal with me. And it's very important that you don't deal with me if you don't trust me, because, you know, you are, I'm a trust counterparty for you. And so what this does is this, this is the dominant dynamic in, let's say, financial systems. You only deal with things which are trusted. The reason is that because they are, you know, trust counterparties on various interactions. And so who can be trusted? You need to be legally regulated. You need to have reputation. If you have 150 Mm -hmm. years of reputation. So what this does is consolidate all activity around a few entities. Trust consolidates activity. Yeah, whether it's, you know, whether it's like ratings agencies, whether it's time in existence, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, there's all these different factors that go about in determining trust of an organization or institution. Absolutely. And so a new innovator, like you cannot imagine, you cannot even begin to imagine like that there will be a financial service written by an anon, you know, who knows man, woman or child or alien or AI. (laughs) and create Mm -hmm. new crazy DeFi protocols. And the reason it's possible, we don't need to know who they are because we don't need to trust them. And this Mm -hmm. separation of innovation and trust is an absolute mind-bending concept that I think Ethereum particularly introduced. The idea that Ethereum underwrites trust for any application, right? Whereas in, in Bitcoin, the idea was, yeah, that is the idea of decentralized trust, but there is no idea of the separation of trust and innovation. The idea of separation of trust and innovation came with the introduction of Ethereum. The idea that there is a universal smart contract platform on which any application can then just build and absorb the trust of the core platform. I think this is such a powerful idea. I I think of this as almost at the same level as venture capital. Venture capital is the separation of innovation and capital. I bring innovation, you bring capital, both of us work together and then we create some some output. This has led to so many of the innovations in the last 70 years mm-hmm. we take for granted. Mm-hmm. And I think the separation of innovation and trust is at the same level of like a uh, paradigm shift. The idea that you can be a nobody and you can create services that anybody can consume. This is just such a superpower. And and one, uh, one theme I like to, uh, to state here is, you know, uh, uh, there is this uh, meme in blockchain that, you know, Google said, uh, uh, don't be evil and blockchain is can't be evil. Uh, I think there is a variation of it in the permissionless innovation, which is, you know, people say don't discriminate. And in crypto, you can't discriminate. I, I don't know who's on the other <laughs> end to, to actually like actively discriminate. And you don't need to discriminate because they don't, you don't need to know who they are. You can, you know, trust is coming from somewhere else. And I think this is a really, I I don't think as a community, we have communicated this very well to outside. I think most people in the community, of course, know all these things that I'm saying. But Mm -hmm. from the outside, I don't think people, because this is a paradigm shift that has not been understood. And one of my, like, you know, our uh, project's core vision is to maximize the surface of permissionless innovation. This is one of our major goals. How do you make sure that anybody can come and innovate without having to bring trust themselves? 
And mm-hmm. so that that's really uh, been one of our focal points. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like the combination of what you just said, separation of innovation and trust combined with the permissionlessness of that innovation, it just like explodes, you know, 10x. And I, I recalled in one of your videos, you had mentioned that, you know, Ethereum was able to do this separation of innovation and trust, but you only get to innovate on kind of like the DAP layer. But kind of everything underneath that, you're 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 stuck. So I, I'd love to go in a bit deeper into how Eigenlayer comes in and solves all of that. Awesome, yeah. You know, if you look at the uh, the separation of what level of innovation can you accommodate on a common trust layer, right? So that is the question that we are asking. And what Ethereum did is it said anybody who writes an EVM program can now just come and plonk it on top of this like common trust layer and. You don't have to go find like a or create a whole new trust network, which is what you would have done in the pre-Ethereum days, you know, between Bitcoin and Ethereum. And so that's a huge amount of like surface area for permissionless innovation. And if you fast forward from 2014, 2015, when this idea came to be to say 2020, when the idea of layer two rollups came up, this is again another like paradigm shift in permissionless innovation. In fact, if you kind of like looked around like the 2017 to 2020 time time frame, where Ethereum was like going in the direction of sharding, right? Oh, I, I want to create like these shards and everything. The problem with sharding, you know, uh, there are many, many ways to create sharding. And then like we have to figure out which protocol is optimal for sharding. And then we as Ethereum mm-hmm. community or foundation or whatever, we implement this protocol. And Instead, Ethereum like gave up on that roadmap and then shifted to this idea of layer two rollups. This so what is the idea of layer two rollups? The idea of layer two rollups is I can build a chain and offload computation and execution, and this chain only like you know relies on Ethereum on certain functionalities like verifying that the proof is correct, making sure that the data is published, and so on. Just a few dimensions rather than doing all the work on the uh, layer one. So this, you can see the amazing explosion of layer twos that happened because of this. It required a different kind of a commitment to permissionless innovation to actually go ahead and say that that's what we're doing. Many people thought this is a ridiculous idea because now what happens to block space? How are you going to price it? How is this going to work? But, you know, it's, it's really amazing that Ethereum took that step and committed to it and said that we're dropping all our plans for sharding. This is it, like let the free market build like layer two systems on top of this thing. This is just such an amazing and powerful step in this direction of maximizing the service area of open innovation. And this is the, uh, and, and you can see now, like there are so many EVM and, non-EVM mm-hmm. layer twos and, you know, iteration saying I'm going to bring in smart contract wallets, somebody else saying I'm going to parallelize the VM, somebody else. Can... And why is this happening? It's happening because firstly, you don't have to choose one idea and then only implement it. If you're implementing at the core protocol, you could only implement one thing. Right. On top of that, now that there is a permissionless competition, there is somebody out there who thinks they can get a 10,000x or 100,000x in their like financial upside. Mm-hmm who's then like fighting to figure out how to make this thing work. It's just mm-hmm. amazing. I mean, this is what, this is the power of, you know, having a common framework, a credibly neutral framework of decentralized trust, supporting a variety of permissionless innovation. And 
also one of the reasons I chose to build on top of Ethereum is because this is the underlying value system. Mm-hmm. You know, there are different communities have different underlying value systems. Mm-hmm. And I resonated deeply with this thing that, you know, it's clear that, you know, the rate of innovation and the the openness with which that is exposed is actually one of the core values. Okay, so if you look at Ethereum started dApps are permissionless and then now layer twos are permissionless, which is already like a much more uh, open, but still many other things are not permissionless today, right? Like for example, what is the Ethereum consensus protocol? Yeah, okay, there is one consensus protocol. You cannot run 20 consensus protocols for Ethereum. That's not possible. Mm -hmm. You cannot, if I wanted to build an Oracle and the Oracle's basically bringing in data feeds, you know, that I have to go and construct a whole new decentralized trust network for just that Oracle. If I want to bring, uh, build a data availability or uh, any other new system, then I have to go and construct a new. So one of the things that we are trying to do is to say that, can we take the uh, Ethereum trust network and supply that to anybody who wants to consume it? And you can ask, why is this possible now? What happened? I think the main thing that happened is proof of stake. So Ethereum transitioned to proof of stake last year, right? And mm-hmm. this is a huge thing because proof of stake trust is programmable in a way in, in which proof of work trust is not programmable. Because when you have proof of stake trust, trust is coming because people are putting down some capital and they're committing to providing some action. And if they don't provide that action, then they're liable to lose their deposit, right? So this is the kind of root of the proof of stake trust. And if you look at it like this, uh, but this is not possible. The negative incentive part is not possible with proof of work, right? You know, you cannot say that, hey, uh, Kit ran this like mining Mm -hmm. hardware and, you know, he did something bad. I'm going to go and burn his mining hardware. (laughs) I'm going to send him a virus. (laughs) I'm coming for you, Kit. I know what you did. Yeah. True. Yeah, true, exactly. True. So that that's not possible. But in, in uh, proof of stake, it's possible because the actuation mechanism of the blockchain can burn somebody else's like, you know, okay. tokens, right? So this is a super powerful like paradigm shift that I think very few people fully appreciate it. You know, we all talk about like the energy consumption and like, you know, green and all this stuff. But I think even more fundamental is that when you want to build a kind of a digital civilization, we need both positive and negative incentives to be programmable. And this is particularly true when you want to absorb this trust for some other purposes. For example, let's say I ask the ETH stakers to go run my data storage solution. Okay, And if they don't do this, let's say not all the ETH stakers run my data storage solution. Maybe only 10% of ETH stakers run my data storage solution. What if they didn't do the thing that they said they're doing correctly? Okay. They may say, oh, yeah, I'm storing your data. And then actually when I ask for it, they say, I, I don't know, forgot about it. <laughs> okay. So how do you get trust yeah. in a system like this? If, you know, if 100% of each stakers, if it's part of the Ethereum protocol, what would happen is if these stakers behave badly, the ETH token will lose its value. Mm-hmm. So there is a negative incentive for each stakers to care a lot about like the value of the ETH token. And because the ETH token is tied to providing storage services or whatever set of services, then yeah, okay, so I would I will continue to do it. Otherwise I'm at least losing something. Whereas in in restaking, the paradigm that we brought in, 
the idea is what if 10% of Ethereum nodes opt into my protocol and they misbehave? If they misbehave, then, you know, if I cannot punish them, basically ETH is not going to go up or down in value because of the kind of new storage protocol somebody built on top of Ethereum. Now, there is no negative incentives. If there's no negative incentives, there's no regularization that the system will work correctly. And so this is what proof of stake enabled. Proof of stake and the full universal programmability of EVM together basically enable programmable staking. So eigenlayer is really just programmable mm-hmm. staking. So you stake in Ethereum and then you can make certain claims that not only I'm running the Ethereum software, I'm also going to be running all this other, I'm also going to be running the storage software. And you can hold me to account on Ethereum blockchain coming and making a proof that, hey, you said you're going to store it. Here's a message. And like, actually, I'm going to ask you to produce that data blob right now on chain. And if you cannot produce it, I'm going to kind of take your funds away. So there are mechanisms for enforcement that are born out of this concept of staking. And that's such Mm -hmm. a huge um, uh, advantage of proof of stake and programmability. So I think that's what we kind of eigenlayer uh, is built on the idea that if you take the stake, and then add on these additional slashing conditions as well as positive incentives, which is I'm going to get, you know, some data storage Mm -hmm. fee. I'm going to get some Oracle fee. I'm going to get some, uh, you know, new chain fee, whatever these other fees Mm -hmm. are. And so this is going to be my additional yield. I can actually opt in to this new service. I I love that concept, programmable staking. That's a very elegant way to put it. Proof of stake Mm -hmm. allows for programming positive and negative incentives, which makes eigenlayer possible. Um, One thing that you... Uh, said that eigenlayer, you know, can be attached to is oracles. And a few weeks ago, we had on a Chainlink God, uh, and I asked him, "Hey, like, can like Chainlink be attached to something like Oracle? Like, I mean, like eigenlayer, or like can Chainlink have a competitor like that goes on eigenlayer?" And his response was like, "You know, I don't really see eigenlayer as a threat because there's much more that goes into, um, you know, running oracles than just like." the consensus part, like uptime, like making sure it's like a whole process. So I know you watched that clip. We talked about it. Um, What would be your response to Chainlink God? Yeah, he's probably correct that every new service is not just where the root of trust is coming from. Every Mm -hmm. new service needs to be competent in enabling and orchestrating a decentralized trust network to actually then provide that service. Right. So, that part is absolutely true. Like, how do you ensure uptime? How do you make sure that you're penalizing nodes that are behaving badly? What are the um, uh, positive incentives for actually serving data to, to go higher and higher in quality of data and, and, and all these things? These are all things that, you know, of course, Chainlink is very competent in. And uh, But what does Eigenlayer uniquely unlock that was not possible pre-Eigenlayer in the Oracle domain, right? Mm-hmm. What it unlocks is the only way that you could be an Oracle that is competing with Chainlink or any other, uh, or in any middleware domain competing with an existing uh, other service is by starting your own staking community. And that is such a hard bar, (laughs) Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Because you have this thing, you start and you go and on day one, you create a new token and you say, hey, you know, here is a competitor to uh, an existing Oracle service, and then I want to actually get people to use it. 
I think it's not at all easy because your token value is not high on day one. So there's no economic security underwriting your system. If there's no economic security underwriting your system, there are no users. If there are no users, your token doesn't grow in value. So you're just dead on arrival. Mm -hmm. So this is a possible problem for many kinds of middleware services. And what EigenLayer does is just solve that problem. It doesn't solve all the other problems. It's not, it's not the same as, oh, this, this is because I got a free, like, or not a free, a lower cost, you know, staking system to opt into my thing. Doesn't mean that it is going to be so much easy for you to go build a new Oracle or a bridge or anything. You have to be competent at distributed systems. You have to build all this stuff. You have to build the right economic structures on top of it. You have to incentivize people to kickstart that system. All of these things you, you have to do. And um, it, there will be frictions. But it's just unlocking this one dimension that my mm. token value needs to be larger than some existing mm. token in order for me to even consider offering the service, right? Imagine theoretically somebody had this amazing like design, which is better than anything else. They had nowhere to go, nowhere to even test out whether they can, they can actually satisfy all these uptime and other properties that Chainlink may offer. So that's all that it does. It doesn't do anything more. Like, obviously, what we are betting on is that the best technology always have to win. And You're betting on innovation. Betting on innovation. And that is really what I I, I, uh, I, I would hope Chainlink would agree with that, that basically that's what, mm. you know, and they continue to be the best. They will always win. So there is no question yeah. about it. You're basically creating this like, field. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I feel like, you, you know, not only is uh, EigenLayer kind of betting on innovation, but you're also kind of betting on competition, right? Because right. you are kind of lowering the barrier for That's a lot right. of other people to bootstrap, right? That's right. You don't need to, no one's going to have like this incumbent advantage because they built this thick network first. And now That's everyone right. has I to think that is, That's a precise way of mm -hmm. saying it is that the competitive advantage arising due to just the fact that I built a staking mm -hmm. network is not enough. There are other competitive advantages. I have integrations, I have users, sure. I have like four years of experience, whatever, right? Like there are many advantages mm -hmm. that go into a competitive advantage. We are just saying that the one part, which is just staking an economic value that is already staked on your network may not be a sustainable competitive advantage. There are all of these other things that continue to maintain your innovation edge. And of course, you know, that could be uh, pretty viable as a highly valuable system. Uh, just to add one more thing from the uh, from the short mm -hmm. conversation I watched uh, between you guys and Chainlink Guard is this question of how do you bootstrap a system like this on day one when you ask you know Ethereum nodes to restake for your Oracle or data availability or anything else you know there may not be that much fees and why would they mm -hmm. restake I think it's a great question there are two parts to this answer part one is Restaking has lower capital cost than staking, right? Because you're already getting your five, six percent from staking. So as long mm -hmm. as you're getting like the additional one percent from all the other services together, you're probably happy, mm -hmm. right? So and you may opt into like twenty services, and like the first eighteen are paying the fee. You switch on the other ones in the hope that in the future you'll get the fee. That is good enough as a dynamic to to onboard new software, but. You can also like, you know, as a system builder, uh, you have to think about incentives for how to bootstrap your own system. You may say, hey, this new Oracle is going to have this new Oracle token, which accrues value. And you can incentivize the stakers by giving a cut of the Oracle tokens to the ETH stakers. So 
there's nothing that says that you only give your token emissions to your own token stakers. You can give it to the ETH stakers. And so they will gladly opt into an Oracle, which is giving like a 5% of its tokens as like the first year reward for restaking and people will opt in. So the same mechanisms that are used for bootstrapping your system outside can be used Mm -hmm. here with much lower capital costs relative to the amount of capital that can be restaked because they are restaking across not one service, across so many services Mm -hmm. and the core Ethereum service, which is guaranteeing them a certain So are you saying that like, this kind of sounds like a... Like back in 2020 when like DeFi, like, you know, when incentivizing liquidity, but instead yes. of incentivizing liquidity, we're incentivizing security. Like, oh, like we want to bootstrap security for our yeah. network or for our service. Let's offer like a juicy yield on it and attract uh, stakers early on. And, you know, you get them there, it's sticky. And then hopefully like the idea is like, okay, we're going to get it, get enough and then it will be self-sustainable. That's right. So once you have enough like staking and one of, enough users and there's a value flow, even mm-hmm. if you remove the token or whatever, it's still useful because, you know, the Oracle nodes are there, that there is enough users, they're paying a fee to bootstrap the different sides of your market. And I think the one way in which it's different from the DeFi summer is the idea that uh, in several of these, uh, so if you just zoom out, right, like what is the core value proposition of all of crypto? The underlying essential ingredient is decentralized trust. And so this is the only thing that's kind of like the core essential value of the whole space. And what is the total market opportunity around, you know, supplying decentralized trust, right? It's basically like every, you know, everything out there, which is in blockchain is basically supplying decentralized trust in some way. And here we have a massive existing trust network, the Ethereum staking network, and we are offering the ability for those nodes to participate in all this real value. I think there is a real mm-hmm. value in uh, in provisioning decentralized trust. And the way I think about it is uh, in DeFi, you know, you're put locking up capital. And why, why are you getting a yield for locking up capital? You're getting a yield for locking up capital because you're taking a certain or underwriting a certain price risk. Like there's some price movements, there is relative volatility and all that, and you're you're kind of underwriting that price list and you get a certain kind of like a reward for it. Um, in, in staking, what are you doing? What you're doing is you're putting your capital at risk and providing some operational support for like validating these systems and you're underwriting the risk. So the staking yield is predicated on a certain information asymmetry. What is the asymmetry? If I am a staker and I'm honest, I know that I cannot lose my money. It's a very different thing than underwriting DeFi price, price risks because uh, there is an information asymmetry. You don't know. You can't trust me. So you're saying, you know, show me your money like because you don't necessarily trust me. But I'm saying, yeah, I know I'm honest. So I know I will never be slashed because, you know, the protocol says you'll get slashed only if you don't do X, Y, Z. I know I'm running the right version of the node, so I'm never going to get into the XYZ bad conditions. So when I'm staking and committing to all these, you know, different services being run on top of Eigenlayer, actually, I'm not taking a very significant risk if I trust that the protocol only slashes on certain conditions, right? So there is some code audit and code understanding that you have to go through. But once you have that, there is no uncertainty of the market or something else which can come and, you know, slash me. That's not how it works. So... 
validation risk is a different category of yield and it is driving the core value proposition of blockchains, which is supplying decentralized trust. So that's one thing I wanted to say. When people talk about the over-leveraging risks and so on, when you view, view that from the point of view of the person who's putting down the capital, you know, essentially, if you're leveraging in other systems, you're underwriting that, oh, if price moves more than you know, 10%, I'm going to lose all my money. But that's not what you're doing when you're doing, uh, you know, participating in eigenlayer. You're essentially saying I'm putting down my capital and I'm validating all these instead of I'm uh, instead of saying that I'm willing to lose my money if I did A wrong. You're saying that I'm willing to lose my money if I did A, B, C or D wrong. And you know that if you don't do any of those things wrong, which is in your control to do, you'd never lose your money. So it's a it's a different kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And I think each thing needs its own mental models. And mm. that's something that we find is not common. Yeah, even in the language, like, you know, I even in my article said rehypothecation, which is a term in finance to describe what's going on with Eigenlayer. Um, with the nuance that you presented, that might not be suitable because rehypothecation is like piling risk on top of each other. Um, mm -hmm. While with Eigenlayer, it's much more straightforward and you, it's not like you're taking any risk. It's like everything is in your control, basically. That's right. That's okay. right. Ex mm -hmm. Except the programming and smart contract risk, which, you know, yeah. theoretically one should calibrate for themselves. But other than that, if you can vet the code, that already you're taking, for example, as an Ethereum staker, you're running the Ethereum code base and you could get slashed, right? And you know that you can trust the code because of ABCD, it has been audited mm -hmm. by this. If you vet everything that you're doing with the same standard, you can opt in. Another way of thinking about it is you suppose you opt into 10 different software and every staker opts into these 10 different software. Mm -hmm. You can think of the Ethereum protocol itself has undergone a protocol upgrade with saying that not only you run this node, but also you run these 10 softwares together. Mm -hmm. That's the new Ethereum protocol. It's a kind of free market upgrade to Ethereum, right? Like, so yeah. there is this mm -hmm. idea yeah. that somebody comes in and provisions a protocol and now everybody opts in and has opted into that protocol that's as though Ethereum itself has like upgraded in it, its protocol. And whatever considerations you apply there also apply here. Yeah, I think that's actually such a critical piece of the over leveraging problem that people talk about when they talk about eigenlayer like the paradox is that actually if the whole ethereum network secures all the middleware and the stuff that is using eigenlayer that's actually a lot better you know because now the, the, the systematic risk is, is, is kind of eliminated because well now you have the security of the whole ethereum network protecting you Right. Could yeah. you elaborate a little bit more on that yes, for the people? Yes, I think I have this analogy that we uh, we can think about. I think it's a popular analogy in blockchains. The idea of you know blockchains as nation states, right? Mm -hmm. So before we go to blockchains as nation states, let's start with dApps as city city states. Each application is like a city, right? And mm -hmm. all these cities are sitting on a common blockchain, like a nation. You could say that the right paradigm is the paradigm of city-states. Each DAP should have its own like protection and security. But we don't see it in practice, the concept of city-states. Why? Because each city will have a limited you know, uh, security budget to protect itself. And mm -hmm. a, a good idea is to actually like aggregate all many, many cities and then construct a nation and provide a common security provisioning for the nation. We also see this fractal structure where nations themselves come together and create like these NATO and other alliances mm -hmm. to share security across broader uh, spaces. Okay, so 
If you take this analogy, I think the the one place where I think it breaks down somewhat is that, you know, there is this landmass and, you know, there is a, you know, standing army, you know, which is the Ethereum block production protocol, which is protecting this like entire nation, which is all these dApps. But the Ethereum protocol does not protect, give you any defense against air attacks, which are oracles doesn't give you any any defense against like these water attacks like navy attacks through like you know bridges or you know or wow. chemical weapons or like bioweapons or all these other mm-hmm. things right and that's not how we run our countries we don't say that there is a separate defense for like army and a separate defense you know like a private company dealing with the uh, navy and air pri- threats yeah. air threats and all that's not i think a stable equilibrium I think a stable equilibrium is that the same security force needs to provide an integrated security because you get screwed whether you get attacked on the air or 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 on the waterfront or whatever other other modes. So I think what Eigenlayer does, you know, in, in terms of other modules inside the Ethereum ecosystem, is it basically enables this idea of you know, sharing this existing security force, making it more programmable, say that, mm-hmm. oh, you know, take care of the air threats, take care of the water threats, take care of the biological weapons and all these different dimensions of security. And so that I think is actually by integrating security as much as possible across the different dimensions of attack, you actually just get a better net, you know, benefit on per unit dollar spent on security. So that is the the first like, paradigm that eigenlayer enables then you can also ask is eigenlayer is also a mechanism by which ethereum as a blockchain you know plus all its services like oracles and everything else is then exporting its security to other nation states it's kind of like enabling the formation of things like nato the idea being that oh ethereum's security now you know I, i'm a new chain and I, i'm like a child chain and and I don't want to go like figure out a whole new like security model, say, hey, you know, I'm just paying some rent to the Ethereum stakers and say that, hey, please, you know, take care of my security. And so it starts, you start to see this like, you know, configuration of something like the NATO emerging out of something like Eigenlayer. So two things, one is multiple dimensions of security. So you want to expand the same set to provide security across all of these things. And then the other thing is the globalization of security. You can now export security. And, you know, the core thing that Ethereum now does is to be a net producer of security. Wow. And and, and when you said exporting security, there was this one slide in your, your presentation that I made me kind of rethink about how alt L1s would come to exist post an eigenlayer world. Because then in, in this graphic, I, hopefully we, we can pull it up for the, the viewers, but it's effectively, you just put every other blockchain from Cosmos's Tendermint to uh, Snowman's Avalanche, and then you just interject it, like, you know, Eigenlayer, and then bottom of that is the ETH Centralized Trust Network. And I'm just like, wait, so does that just render, you know, all the AVAX tokens, all the, you know, you kind of see where I'm going with this, (laughs) you know? So could you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I feel like that was a very choice graph. And in other words, those are fighting words. (laughs) I I wish I had that graph on me, damn. But yeah, Yeah. go ahead. Um, Okay, so I can pull it up, but I'll just say something and pull it up. The idea is that, you know, 
one of one of our driving values is like i said open innovation and open innovation basically means people should compete with each other uh, on like all kinds of ideas including the idea of ethereum itself is open to competition and i think that's what some of these other blockchains had to do mm-hmm. but they were doing it for one particular reason which is technical deficit or technical advantages relative to the ethereum protocol and you could say oh there are many trade offs and like you know you can design a blockchain in one way you can design a blockchain in another way and if you design it in another way you will actually have kind of a uh, different trade offs and what we are doing is making the kind of ethereum ecosystem more powerful so that you know these technical trade offs can be internalized you can have a system which is so versatile that many many technical designs can be built kind of in in parallel rather than i'm only supporting one technical design so the technical arbitrage is taken out okay but there are other reasons that you would want to absolutely have a another blockchain one would be that i don't want to have any security exposure to ethereum because of you know it is this integrated trust model i don't like it i want my own application chain or my own chain to have its own mm-hmm. trust model maybe you know there is this beautiful idea in the cosmos community of community computers the idea that like every community will come together and they'll have their own validation and like they we just run our system we don't need like it's not economics alone that drives like who should validate a system mm-hmm. you know maybe it's our village and we have like our own like 50 village people who are running this it's an a- absolutely beautiful idea it's just not where cosmos is today in for many different things is basically each chain is function is behaving like a certain function rather than it's a community which is just just internally operating it, because the i the problem with if each chain is its own function and normally you want many functions in order to survive you basically take the worst of the trust bottlenecks like you have you know i'm touching this for a dex i'm t- touching that for like a swap mm-hmm. i'm touching this for this and so you have like many many different chains each of which are specializing in function and i need to compose many of the chains in order to get a function then i take the worst of the trust of all these different chains that's not a very strong model but if if it is that like each chain is its own community for example i really like this as a kind of pivotal idea that you know validation so i think proof of stake is the uh, is our current approximation to what we think is a good architecture it's not the universally best architecture somebody may contend for example i mm-hmm. uh, i i like chia uh, chia's mm-hmm. proof of space protocol because it can be highly decentralized it's energy efficient it is you know you just prove that you have some amount of ram and you can participate and i'm not talking about like what use cases are built on the chia protocol but just on the core aspects of how the consensus protocol is designed it's a completely dramatically different dimension mm-hmm. from what you know ethereum or bitcoin or any of these other other systems went to and there will be reasons like this that you'd want like completely different chains but it's not purely like oh you know i have this you know two technical differences and i need to create a new chain and to 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 the defense of all these other chains maybe if eigenlayer existed 3 years back or the proof of stake system in ethereum existed 3 4 years back you wouldn't have needed all these other chains they would have already built on top of something like this because if you have a new consensus protocol where do you go there's nowhere to go in fact the reason we created eigenlayer like i said is that we were struggling with this exact same problem we had ideas that hey i can build a new data availability protocol i can build a new consensus protocol i can build a new like first in first out ordering protocol whatever ideas you have 
there's nowhere to go and try and you know see if there is use use cases and interest in it other than building you know your own L, L1 empire mm-hmm. yeah yeah i i, I was going to say um you know coming coming up uh we see a lot of uh, thank you for all that but coming up we see a lot of talk about ethereum lsds um and i'm like you know i wrote an article like a month back about uh fraxeth and you know a possible collaboration between Fraxeth and Eigenlayer. And I'm like, damn, the way that Fraxeth is constructed, you can probably silo, you actually, no, you should definitely silo like a separate Fraxeth vault called like ES Fraxeth. And mm-hmm. that with like, it's with those extra parameters for slashing, like if a user wants to take on, you know, wants the opportunity to like earn more yield, but take on, you know, more risk of slashing, they can go into that vault. Um, so I'm wondering um, if you read that article at all, what are your thoughts on like the ETH landscape, the ETH LSD landscape? And like, did I miss anything at all? No, it's a really interesting idea. I think the one issue with using something like Eigenlayer in, in the context of, you know, creating things like stable coins is that you want them, you know, do you want to liquidate the collateral at some point and then, you run into over leverage risks, which is very different from the other use cases that, you know, uh, we were talking about. Uh, so uh, well, the so uh, the uh, so Fraxeth and like S and like the vault, I guess like the earning vault are like separated. So like Fraxeth itself, so like would be fine. Um, it's like ES Fraxeth. It's just it's like own vault that's earning yield. Yeah. Yeah. So was was this design non fungible in the sense that different stakers can opt into different things, or the entire frag, stake fraxy stakers all opt into the same eigenlayer services? Uh, so how I envision it would be there'd be different. There would be like uh, a four four two six two vault or four yeah four two six is it four six two six yeah four six two six vault four six two six vault one that is just you know for securing Ethereum as fraxy and another vault for securing like the whatever the eigenlayer vault is um es uh fraxeth um and that's separate from fraxeth the stablecoin so fraxeth the stablecoin it's just that like, is that stuff. is really interesting design uh, mm-hmm. i i haven't fully understood the frax design with this two token model i've just gone over yeah. that a little bit i'm mm-hmm. also not an expert on DeFi. we have some people in our team who uh who Play a lot You're just all in the right. infrastructure. I'm all in on the infrastructure. And to the extent mm-hmm. needed, we just needed to figure out whatever the financial stuff that needs to power it, which is just taking. Um, yeah. But I can see the issue, the issue with like other LSDs, you know, trying to integrate uh, Eigenlayer. It's if, like if it's just one token and you're like, ha- it just doesn't work because like you said, like. The, yeah. So you have to make upset. a decision as the entire LSD that, okay, you know, we are okay to absorb this risk of whatever the eigenlayer services together with the core ethereum staking that's a that's a mm-hmm. that's one way of dealing with it but you know you can't deal with it in this uh differential exposure way that you know maybe you can do with in frax where in, you can go from a two token model to a three token model where like you know s frax mm-hmm. and e- mm-hmm. es frax together support the frax ecosystem yeah. i think that's a really interesting uh design space that you have there because of the particular design of uh, yeah. frax. There, there was also an article in which is, I think, somewhat different from the uh, the thing that we're talking about by Vitalik on how to design a stable coin using um, like staking derivatives, particularly like Eigenlayer. So 
there yeah. is some some set of thoughts there that you know I, I think you would really, discussion. I think you would really like the most inter- recent interview with Sam Cass, the founder of Frax, because in the same way that you described uh, like evolution and it's kind of like this, oh, like we're all figuring out like what is the ideal form of, you know, of a certain product, whether it's like an Oracle or whether it's, you know, security or consensus, like stablecoins acts in the same way. And the way he described it was like, there's this like platonic form of like what the ideal stablecoin looks like. And everyone's just building towards and kind of discovering like what that form is. Um, and that's the whole idea behind the DeFi Trinity. It's like, you know, all these different parts that Frax has built, like whether it's Fraxland, Fraxswap, the stablecoin, it's like, they're not separate. They're all like part of the same thing. And then you see that with like, you know, Go coming out with Aave, CRV, USD coming out with Curve. Um, like they're all building towards the same thing. So I see like a lot of similarities. It's just happening of like, discovery but it's happening at different levels like frax is happening at like its financial application layer while with eigenlayer it's happening at this you know security consensus like oh like let's like tinker with like certain things at that level um totally yeah. totally i think uh yeah i completely agree with that uh, assessment on how defi is had this like uh, convergent evolution right like that's what we would call it mm-hmm. from evolution is the idea that convergent that's the name that's the name i've been looking for <laughs> that's awesome uh, yeah 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 and also i you know sure it's actually the frax eth token model is not just you know three token model it could be n token yes. models because yeah <laughs> so many different vaults yes. because the, mm-hmm. so yes let me take a step back to like maybe 30 minutes in our conversation earlier where we talk about DeFi summer and how you know like that allowed for you, you kind of get token emissions and stuff what i kind of imagined for eigenlayers it unlocked this like degeneracy for eth stakers that now if they want to speculate on like, hey, I think this new this new middleware is going to have an airdrop or is going to do something for all the stakers who participate in it, then I want to participate in it, right? It allowed for almost this new form of liquidity mining. It's like a pool three, but instead you don't have to yeah. risk any of your ETH. You just, you know, or, or buy any of my, you know, uh, token, you just stake your ETH and you'll get some more of these tokens. So I, I thought that was like very interesting. And how that incorporates into with Frax ETH is there could be almost this yearn yield like product that lives on top of Frax ETH and Eigenlayer and move the, the ETH restaking around to be like, hey, I want to I want to go super risky. So any new thing that launches on Eigenlayer, I'm going to be I'm, I'm willing to restake. So re restaking, restaking, exactly. Restaking, <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. And then I, yeah. I wanted to ask if there is a max limit, Shiram. If let's say the whole ETH stakers is ten billion, does that mean it can only support ten billion dollars of value? So is it always capped? Because okay, in all okay. L1, so that's you know, yeah. you could have more, right? With each alt L1, it's like, oh, that's another 10 billion. That's another 40 billion, like, et cetera. It, it, it kind of scales up like that. Okay, so here is the uh, the over-leveraged problem again, but I think here is an important observation. How much is how much of Ethereum stake today? Like 20, 25 billion dollar worth. How right. much of total value lives on top of Ethereum? 400, 500 I, billion. Yeah. So wh- why is it okay? Okay, so we have to dig into like, before we understand the over leverage accrued due to Eigenlayer, we have to understand the over leverage already accrued in the Ethereum protocol. 
and why is it okay mm-hmm. i think there is a very solid like set of theory that one can do to understand it and high level you can just think of it as the following so you have a 20 billion dollar stake um why is nobody attacking it okay so firstly it's difficult to attack it in practice blah blah but let's assume those practical problems go away let's say i give you like 40 billion you just restake the 40, you just take the 40 billion and now you can attack ethereum and steal like 400 mm-hmm. billion right okay what's wrong with this uh, what's wrong with this what is going to go wrong number one um if i attack all this like 400 billion worth of things i need to as an attacker i need to be able to run away with it before the chain forks to the state where there is no attack right so there's an attack chain mm-hmm. and then like you know protocols can fork and then you know in a fork right. there will be like uh, a different chain where like the attack didn't happen and the question is like am i going to be able to run away with more than 400 billion or more than 20 billion which i will definitely lose because of slashing am i going mm-hmm. to be able to run away with more than that within the like you know period and you know you can try to see how much liquidity is on various exchanges and stuff and real world enforcement add up all of the stuff you know if 20 billion dollars is a lot of security so you not be able to move anything of that amount because of real world and social considerations and exchanges will detect right. an anomaly and won't you, bla- yeah. you know won't so there is all these real things that happen that is going to limit the volume and that is really so the the model that the total amount secured is dependent on the total amount staked is not correct the correct model is the total volume transacted in an event horizon should be less than the total amount staked that is the right model for how security works and we're writing up an article hopefully you know this will clear up some of these things that's a great way to put it. It's the security is actually limited by the liquidity of whether you can run away with the money, right? Mm. If if you just rob the bank and then you jump onto the 10 freeway and it's just gridlock traffic and you're like, well, all right, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of over. You can't run away with it. Oh, that's exactly. actually a really good way. I mean, that's like the same in the real world. Like you're limited by the liquidity in the markets. Yeah, exactly. Um, Wow, that's very quite interesting. I I see, I see. Um, yeah, I can't wait. Like one thing I also wrote in the article was, you know, the sucker frax chain, whether it's a roll up or something else. Um, and I imagine, you know, everybody wants to own their own real estate, and you know, it just makes sense. Like I can just imagine like frax seats being used to secure that. Like that's like the per- perfect first eigenlayer chain. Like down the road when that becomes a thing. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. yeah. Actually, Dave, you brought up a good point. Uh, Shriram, could I ask a very basic question? And maybe you can help illuminate some things in my mind here. How does Eigenlayer plug in to all the rollups and the L2s? Oh, yeah. So I, Eigenlayer itself, right? Like, you know, if somebody else had maybe designed Eigenlayer, what, what could have happened is, you know, the obvious use case of Eigenlayer is to run other chains, right? And you'd say, oh, you know, just take these, big uh, liquid staking derivatives, restake them, and then now you can run, uh, you know, the Solana chain. Take the Solana chain, fork it, take the Avalanche chain, fork it, and then just run it on top of Eigenlayer. This is Ethereum security. It's something that you can do. But the reason uh, uh, we we don't, we didn't go down that path, or at least that is not our 
dominant path for what I think is the most interesting thing to be done. And the reason is when you start saying that the same pool of trust or security is providing like 20 services, right? Now, everybody in this uh, pool has to run all these different services, right? So, and mm -hmm. if everybody needs to run all these services, it's a lot of, you know, only very, very centralized nodes can be able to participate in the system. Right, because everybody oh. needs to run like you know these the Solana chain and Avalanche mm -hmm. and this and that and just explode. Right, so when you have shared trust, it's very important that you assign like the per person duty to be very minimal, and you integrate work across many people to actually get to a higher security. And what Ethereum realized in its research roadmap is that the right way to do this is the modular framework. And the modular framework basically says that, you know, the rollups, for example, offload computation. They don't, they do the execution and computation themselves and make proofs that the computation was done correctly to Ethereum. And Ethereum only is checking the proofs, whether it is in an optimistic way or a kind of a zero knowledge cryptography way. Mm. But Ethereum is only checking that the computation is done correctly. It doesn't have to actually do the computation. And so this gives a massive scaling. Um, so, but there is one aspect in which there is no scaling, uh, at least right now on Ethereum, which is that every rollup or every layer two solution needs to publish the data onto Ethereum. Why do they need to publish the data on Ethereum? They're all offloading computation or outsourcing computation, but the inputs to the computation is the transactions. And if the transaction mm -hmm. is published in public, anybody else can also do the computation and double check that you've done it correctly. Or if somebody else wants to continue off where you left off, they can do it. They don't need to come and like, you know, you don't have any private information or like a lock on the on the state. Anybody else can continue and, and take on from where you left off. So it's extraordinarily mm -hmm. important that every rollup writes data back to Ethereum and publishes it. So in this model, what happens is the core bottleneck of Ethereum becomes the data bandwidth of Ethereum, right? Like you have to write data to Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that you know, this is all already there in Vitalik and Dankrat faced and the entire, entire EF thinking, it turns out that this problem is called data availability or data publication. And data publication is one thing we know how to do in a scalable manner, which means as you get more and more nodes, you can just increase the data bandwidth in a linear manner. And the reason is you take each unit of data and then separate it into small peeds, small pieces, erasure code all of these pieces, and then every node only gets a little bit of data. But together, they all have enough data that even if half the nodes go away, you will be able to recover every unit of information from the other half. So this is the scalable data availability roadmap of Ethereum. And what we're doing, the first thing that we're doing is building a hyperscale data availability layer on top of Eigenlayer. So the reason that we're doing this, and it's very important that we do this, is once you have the scalable data availability layer, and you have uh, these this roll-up paradigm where you're offloading computation, then essentially you have infinite scalability. As you get more and more nodes participate in the system, you just stretch how much data bandwidth is available. And because you have more and more roll-ups like Frax, Frax chain or a Frax roll-up, right? Like it's its own roll-up, but all these roll-ups are offloading computation, only writing data to this common layer. The, this layer supports a massive amount of data bandwidth and you can now support you know, a fully scaling ecosystem. So this is part of the vision that we have. So that's the, that's why the first thing we are building on top of Eigenlayer is a scalable data availability protocol. 
we are scaling the Ethereum data bandwidth today. So if you use Ethereum as only a data ledger, which is write data, no computation, Ethereum's data bandwidth is 83 kilobytes per second. And it's rather small. And we, we mm-hmm. talk about running the world economy on top of a blockchain and so on. It's simply untenable with 83 kilobytes per second, right? And mm-hmm. especially we're not just running like financial services. Mm-hmm. We want to run like the next Uber and like crazy things and the metaverse mm-hmm. and all games. This. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you want to do it first. You want to do all these things. You need to have massive amount of data bandwidth. And this is one of one of my like, you know, long term, you know, s- studies as an academic is we've thought a lot about bandwidth, you know, in wireless bandwidth, everything, right? Like if you. Yeah use spectrum a little bit better if actually you know in in 5g for example if you come up with a way to use 5g spectrum at like 10 percent more efficiency you'd be the absolute king of 5g like that is that's just 10 percent. that's the margins at which they're operating and i look at blockchain and there is like a six orders of magnitude gap between the way systems are built and theoretically mm-hmm. what the what the what the limits are so we're trying to take like you know, steps towards it. We are scaling from 80 kilobytes per second to 10 megabytes per second. So that's our first version. But I think we have a roadmap. We will continue like pushing it. If somebody else comes up with even faster, we're very happy. We don't have to be the data guys. We are building eigenlayer. We have enough on our plate. But it's very Mm -hmm. important that there is a scalable mechanism where everybody doesn't have to do everything. You know, that's not a scalable model. So. Yeah, I have a question. So you guys are focusing on building this data availability you know, layer. Um, something about Eigenlayer is that I've read is there's a marketplace. There's a marketplace where people can like offer their security services and applications and networks can like offer to be secured. Um, are you guys building that or do you expect, you know, somebody else to build that? No, we, we're absolutely building it. It's, oh, you're building that. Okay. Yeah. Just making sure. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. That's so the core thing that we're building is the Eigenlayer marketplace, which is the idea mm-hmm. that you're you're offering your security for many of these other services to then consume it. So it is very early right now uh, to build that marketplace. So we want to demonstrate that the system works by first building one service that works, Uh, and then we onboard a handful of services with close partners, and then we build a marketplace where anybody can come. So got it. Uh, Let's get into the roadmap a bit. So like you guys have your own. Uh, We saw that Mantle is also, you know, going to participate in Eigenlayer as well. Are there like other participants and close partners with Eigenlayer and there's other other parts of the roadmap? That's right. Yeah. So we we are working with a variety of different uh, roll-ups. So for Eigenlayer, the you can build any kind of new services on top, right? So these could be middlewares, these could be new chains, you know, other things. Then there is EigenDA, which is the data availability service and the consumers are roll-ups. And... Mm-hmm. Mantle is a great example of an early partner or maybe the first mm-hmm. partner for us who are actually building a roll-up on top of Eigenlayer on, on EigenDA. Mm-hmm. So this is already something because both Eigenlayer is built and EigenDA is built and both are running on our private test nets. They, they've started working together to figure out how to integrate it, how to design their system to have this kind of like all the interfaces and everything required to use Eigenlayer. Um, so that's that's the initial set of adoption is basically rollups that want to consume data, and we've talking to basically all the rollups, and you know over time we'll start announcing these uh, different partnerships. Um, 
you know, one one of the rollups which uh, which announced on Twitter that they're building is Sovereign, which is a new ZK rollup development kit where like they have a proof system and they're allowing anybody to build rollups on top of this common proof system. So that's one example. There are other ones like Eclipse, which are building, bringing the C-level virtual machine to other ecosystems. They are working on integrations with Eigen, EigenDA. These are the ones that have announced in public. I don't want to say other names that uh, are not yet announced. Mm-hmm. So, but we will we'll be doing that in the in the coming months. Is starting to uh, expand our set of partners of who is building on top of. Uh, EigenDA yeah. and EigenLayer. But uh, EigenLayer itself is, mm-hmm. you know, the way we are thinking about it is there'll be an, any, we are building the first service. We are looking at close partners to build the first few services. And then we will open it up because, you know, there is a whole bunch of study to be done in figuring out what is the interface. How does a node operator take and run like 10 services? How do they do node mm-hmm. management? How do they configure yeah. their systems? There's a lot of unknown unknowns for us in this space, and we're trying to kind of get closer to a yeah. full specification. Do you see a future where you know data availability via Eigenlayer is competitive with data availability in the real world right now? And people are like, oh, like Eigenlayer is better. Let's just go there. Oh, relative to like you know AWS or something? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. So one of our like pegs is that you know um, how how close can we get as uh, EigenDA both on cost basis, on throughput basis to cloud systems? So that is absolutely how we think nice. about it. But I think, you know, there is some aspect of it, which is, you know, still pretty ridiculous to even talk about because, you know, one node in, in AWS can offer so much of elastic block storage and so much of <laughs> like, so, and I I don't think that's necessarily ever going to be the case that blockchains like as exactly as the same cost as uh, AWS. But, you know, if we can get it into like, you know, a 4X or a, or a 10X cost, that's the cost of decentralization that people are yeah. willing to pay something additional. But it should not be 10,000X the cost of storing on Amazon, which is where we are now. Maybe it's not even 10,000X, maybe it's a million X right now. So mm-hmm. we want to cut that slack out significantly. Yeah, you know, people are... Paying the premium for decentralization and sovereignty, basically. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And so we want to minimize the premium that is needed. And I think the right way to minimize the premium is by letting the free market compete with each other on new technical ideas. Right? Like we yeah. are not saying that EigenDA is the final, like uh, best data availability anybody can build. We want other people to come up with like even crazier ideas and, and try to build them. Yeah. And EigenSlayer still wins because it's their marketplace. That's right. right. Yeah. Well, because EigenDA is really just you guys dogfooding yourself. That's right. Right. <laughs> so that you can show that EigenLayer works. So, like, I, I'm I'm now I'm trying to understand, like, just to make sure we're on the same page here, how EigenLayer fits in with all the rollups and the L2s is, you know, there's going to be this trust export that That's you also right. provide. But for this trust export, you're going to use a DA layer That's right. to to capitalize on that trust expert That's right. uh, export, and then the L2s and rollups use the DA layer That's right. oh, so okay. indirectly. They touches that the is eigen that layer. is exactly correct, and okay. it's the only trust export from eigenlayer to rollups need not be just the um, the DA layer. I'll explain some of the other really crazy things mm-hmm. you can build. So one of the problems with rollups today is they have a single point sequencers, one node that collects all the transactions and then right, like does right. everything. 
right? It's it's still not that security critical. It's okay to have one node because you know if you include a transaction in Ethereum, these rollup nodes are forced to include that in their you know eventually in their block, and so there is an amount of censorship resistance that comes across due to that. But if you want to do anything at you know high speed, low latency, right? You want to have an options protocol with options expiring in half hours, right? Like if you want a kind of like a fast trading protocol, if you want a protocol like in Solana where you have a central, you know, a central limit order book, right? Like you, you don't, you can't do this with the amount of censorship resistance that's there on a single sequencer because the sequencer can censor transactions for some amount of time and that's too much amount of time, you know, prices move on all these things. So you don't want to be in that world. So what you want to, what you could do with Eigenlayer is you could build a, a sequencing infrastructure where, which basically all it does is create a layer in which you order the transactions. You don't execute anything. You just create an ordering of transactions and then supply that order to the rollup nodes. Now the rollup node is obliged to include the transactions in that order and they have to do the execution. These nodes only do ordering and ordering is a lightweight operation. Execution is the hard, mm. I mean, like you could take an infinite loop and run it, you know, order it in like no time. It's just a uh, 300 bytes, but to run it, you have to mm-hmm. keep running it forever, right? So the the asymmetry between computation and just like raw data, right, is is huge, and so it's a stateless thing where you just or, or there is a layer that can just order transactions across all these different rollups and then sure. supply the order to all these rollups. That's something we already see many teams interested in uh, in building, and we're discussing whether they'll be building on Eigenlayer. So that's another example of an export of trust from Eigenlayer to a rollup. There are many other examples. I think, you know, for example, what one could think of, you want to have bridges between rollups and other chains, right? So mm-hmm. when you want a bridge between Ethereum and rollup, there is a kind of native bridge, but a rollup between, a bridge between a rollup and some other chain can be mediated through Eigenlayer. A, a bridge between, uh, uh, so that, that's one very interesting example. Another thing is when rollups write data to Ethereum, it takes 12 minutes to finality. Finality time on Ethereum is 12 minutes, and that's a long time. And if a rollup said that I want to have finality in two seconds, right, like Sui or Aptos or other chains are saying that they will do finality much faster. Now, can you take that consensus protocol, run it on top of Eigenlayer and provide a super fast settlement feature where you first settle to this layer and this settle this layer will write everything to Ethereum in that order. And if it doesn't, you will lose the $20 billion of staking. So there are all these like crazy superpowers that you can build to rollups using Eigenlayer. So I wanted to double click on that consensus bit. Like I, is it possible then for someone to launch a consensus layer that only wants to uh, process like OFAC compliant transactions or like, you know, non vice, like no casino, like n- none of this, like, you know, stuff like this is the cleanest chain possible, you know, the, the cleanest chain. Pos- the, comp- the most compliant chain and the most like halal chain, like the Fed chain, right? Yeah. Like, so, so theoretically someone could create that on, on Eigenlayer. And like you said, you guys are a marketplace, right? If a lot of the ETH stakers is like, Oh, I totally want to be compliant and I, I want to support this move towards com- compliance. 
then they can just provide their okay. security. So, so there is a difference between that chain and the Ethereum itself. You know, uh, the the you're you'd be running a different ETH node and you're also running a different eigenlayer node. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, whether uh, on the other chain, what what you're compliant to is obviously that chain's like software decision, right? It, it could say that mm-hmm. you only process transactions which are not in this list or on this list yeah. or whatever set of conditions. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think there will be things like that eventually being built. Uh, but that doesn't really uh, like reflect on what the nodes are doing for Ethereum, right? So there are two different layers and you may still be running like your get node and whatever normal software for your Ethereum nodes, but making certain commitments for some of these other chains. There is another like crazy thing you can do, which is on by having nodes make certain commitments on eigenlayer, change how they order transactions in Ethereum itself. For example, I can opt in into eigenlayer and then I'd say that uh, whenever I get a a bunch, uh, so you could say that whenever I get an encrypted transaction, I, I send a promise that I'll include the encrypted transaction. Then I have to include the decrypted version of that encrypted transaction. Otherwise I'll get slashed. So this is not an Ethereum slashing, right? Ethereum does not slash you for mm-hmm. for doing these things. But you can opt in to Eigenlayer and make that credible commitment that whenever somebody sends me an encrypted transaction, I include it. If I don't decrypt, include the decrypted version of that encrypted transaction, I will lose my money. And this is something that you can commit to on Eigenlayer. So Eigenlayer is allows people, one way of thinking about it is Eigenlayer allows people to make credible commitments. You make a commitment that I will do this and it will hold you to it. It will hold you to your end of your bargain. So, it, But this changes the nature of, you know, Ethereum block ordering. And, you know, for example, somebody could have theoretically opted into a marketplace that of censorship resistance and say that I have to include every encrypted transaction. It's also possible somebody else opts into a compliance registry and says that I will not include any transaction in a certain list. So mm-hmm. it's it's going to be insane. And I think this is going to be decided by like community ethos as to which directions these things take. And we've already wrote a paper on how to use Eigenlayer to increase censorship resistance on Ethereum by creating new services. For example, right now in the way MEV works in Ethereum is, MEV Boost works in Ethereum is that you take trans you know, the block builder who's creating these MEV orders, basically sending a header of the block to the block proposer. And the block proposer signs off on the header blindly because the block builder is worried that if you show the block to the block proposer, they may then reorder the transaction and screw the block builder. So they force the guy to sign off on the header. And now, but the guy has signed off on the header they have no free agency to add a, even a single transaction to this block because you signed off on the header. You know, the header is whatever block the builder made. What you could do on Eigenlayer is you could sell portions of block space on auctions using Eigenlayer on Ethereum, not new chains. This is Ethereum L1 block space. You can start creating block space auctions where you say that I'm selling the, selling the first 80% of the block to this block builder and the remaining 20% is up to me to fill in whichever way I want. And so the block, you know, and if I don't agree, if I don't include those 80% correctly, I will get slashed, but I can still include my 20% whichever way I want. 
So there are all these like nuanced ways in which Eigenlayer can help in completely changing the landscape of censorship resistance of Ethereum itself. There's so many things I'm digesting right now from what you just said about, you know, fractionalizing the the blocks, uh, block headers to uh, the ordering of transaction. I'm trying to think where I want to start. Um, Let's go. So like right now with like MEV, so like MEV, like with the boost, they like send it to like the person who includes the transaction. It's just like they don't show what's there and they just sign off on it. But with Eigenlayer, you guys, so it creates like a, you guys are, kind of creates like a separate marketplace or like it, it yes. allows for the ability to like fractionalize the block and are is the fractionalized block still like you don't know what's in them or is the, it like the first 80%? fraction of the block basically what happens in that market is you know the block builder sends me like a commitment of the first 80 percent of the block then i mm-hmm. sign off on the commitment and then if i don't include that that content in the first 80 percent of my block i'll get slashed but i still have freedom to include whatever i want in the remaining 20 percent Oh, so you can choose like what... What you're selling, what aspects of the block space Mm -hmm. am I selling? You may have a very nuanced system. For example, here's something you guys would probably like a lot is how it changes the nature of DeFi. Okay, so now what you can start doing is there are right now in Ethereum, there is no event-driven actions, right? You know, you cannot trigger an action on, on Ethereum based on an event. Somebody has to trigger a transaction, like a liquidation, right? Like a compound liquidation, or there is a kind of like an atomic arbitrage between Uniswap and SushiSwap. I want to close it and like divide the value between the Uni token holders and Sushi token or Uni LPs and Sushi LPs. You cannot do this today, right? Like the problem is that there is no event triggered action. On Eigenlayer, what could happen is that if I'm a block proposer on Eigenlayer, I could opt into a task called comp liquidations or Aave liquidations or like some frax liquidations, right? So I opt into these new tasks in which I have to do that particular thing that, you know, that protocol says, as long as it's a purely a function of the blockchain state. It should not be a function of external data. It should be just a function of the blockchain state. Then the as a block proposer, the first like five transactions, I should do it. If I don't do it, I'll get slashed. So these are kind of commitments that you can enter into as a block producer that every block, imagine once you have a marketplace where like, 100% of all ETH stakers have opted into, let's say, like a FRAX liquidation protocol. Now, what happens is, you know, how do you set over collateralization ratio in some of these DeFi markets is basically how much volatility you expect in the price within the time to liquidation. And mm-hmm. now Eigenlayer lets you get a control on the time to liquidation because, you know, it's not only for liquidations, you can also for collateral refilling, you can set an event-driven trigger and say that, oh, when my collateral falls below some bar, automatically refill more money from my wallet into my account, mm-hmm. right? So since people can set these things, what you can do is you can set an automatic event-triggered liquidation, which is at like a five block, 10 block time scale, rather than having a huge number of times. So now you reduce the over collateralization factor, increasing DeFi efficiencies. So when you talk about, you know, these conditions and triggering when an event happens, my mind starts racing with automation and I am wearing my gelato shirt uh, where I used to work like, wow, like I worked there for like a year back in 2021. And so I all, I know all about this. Um, And I'm like curious, like, how does the, how can, how does this, so, so like Eigenlayer can just like, uh, 
set like automations to happen kind of at this like node level because it's just like not yeah at, at yes. the eigenlayer level i, I think yeah. the difference between a third party event-driven actions like gelato and mm -hmm. a first party event-driven action like eigenlayer is that essentially there is a problem of non-attributability in gelato right for example somebody says hey actually i triggered this transaction and the block proposer didn't include it right versus the block proposer, uh, you know, versus the guy didn't even trigger it, right? It is not possible mm -hmm. to attribute uniquely between these two different worlds. And so you cannot set very tight penalties for misbehavior, right? So it, it or the, the penalties are conditional on social acceptance and we have to intervene and make sure that, you know, they actually didn't trigger it or they, they didn't get censored. Mm. It's not possible to do unique attribution. On mm. Eigenlayer, if the block proposer is opted in, there is no uncertainty about who didn't do the thing that they were supposed to be doing because they, in some sense, block proposer is the monopoly on block space at that time, right? So mm -hmm. you know that they should have done it and they didn't do it. It's completely attributable. So it changes the attributable nature of the, of something wow. like gelato. So you could actually, you know, if, if, if you, if you're still friends with the team, like, you know, convince them to build an eigenlayer. <laughs> So, yeah, I have brought it. I'm still friends with them. I have. I was like, hey, you guys should look into this because it seems like like every event trigger per se uh, can have its like own eigenlayer like node, I guess. Uh, eigenlayer like marketplace, like that's just right. liquidations, that's right. That's right. just exactly. limit orders, so just um, like relays on, mm -hmm. you know, bridge relays. Yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. Yeah, you should definitely get in touch with them. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if they reached out at all. Because like they're definitely the leaders in automation doing a bunch totally, of totally, totally. Would love to love to be in touch. Uh, I've, I've met them like yeah. one or two times. Like, but that was nine months back, and they probably thought, uh -huh. "Who's this guy selling all this <laughs> crazy?" <ideas>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and Shreya, let's let's you know fast forward a little bit. Once I I can I can like launched and and totally up and going. Like, how do you think about seeding the initial stakers? Right. How do you get those first guys to really buy in? Because it sounds like on the protocol side and the integration, you're getting everybody's buy in. Everyone's excited. But how are you reaching steak out to farming, the actual duh. steak? Yeah, steak the grilling. steak farming. No, steak grilling. <laughs> steak you know. Yeah. yeah. Let it sizzle. <laughs> let, let the re-steak sizzle. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. The, yeah these, these are things we're still thinking through. I think there are a bunch mm -hmm. of patterns like, you know, is there some rewards for initial participants? Are there are, is there enough traction on DA that there is actually roll up fees which is going to this uh, to these uh, uh, restakers? Is there new protocols launching on Eigenlayer that are giving their tokens which then bootstrap the system? All these models are open, and we're trying to figure out which one's the yeah. best way to start. Let's say I'm you know like I run an Ethereum node or a few nodes, and I want to you know. I want to get, I want to participate in Eigenlayer. I want to participate in Eigenlayer DA. Like, how do I do that? Like, is that like out yet? Or are you going to release that at some point? Yeah, it's not out yet. That's why uh, most people uh, probably haven't had an opportunity to participate. So over the next two months, we are going to release some of our, uh, you know, uh, ways to engage with us, including forums to chat, like a Discord research, research page, open source some of our uh, or open up some of our code bases so that people know what interfaces they're building for uh, have a public test net so they're all coming up in the next two or three months 
Mm. Super nice. cool. And and I I'm just sitting here kind of thinking about because you know ever since the beginning of blockchain elementary school, we're all taught that there is this <laughs> trilemma situation, right? Of scalability, security, and decentralization. <laughs> I feel like Eigenlayer just came in and just be like, no, I'm just gonna solve on for, for the decentralization side. <laughs> now you know actually. You kind of solve for all of them because you can do any consensus you kind of want to while also having the trust security of Ethereum. Like, yeah, so I think actually, it kind of you know, builds uh, up, I, I think of it as like building on top of Ethereum. Like at the beginning of the interview, you talked about like, oh, like this evolution of everybody building on top of each other little by little. So Eigenlayer like didn't just come out of nowhere. It's kind of just building on top of Ethereum already in the security that was established. Absolutely. And the in, in and also in the same way, the research ideas underneath, I think, data availability, which actually is is a core component of solving the trilemma. In fact, you know, we uh, we had a protocol three years before uh, called Trifecta, which was supposed to solve the trilemma, which was basically <laughs> premised on the same idea that actually everybody should not download all the data. Everybody should download only a portion of the data, and but system should be as secure as though everybody's downloading the data. And I think that is a core component of scaling. And again, those ideas also, not only the community and the stake we are building on top of Ethereum, the research ideas that went in, also we are building on top of basically the Ethereum research ideas. So we kind of feel a certain camaraderie there. Yeah. yeah. I, I have this uh, story that, you know, Eat Denver is coming up, uh, you know, end of this month. And the first time I uh, went to any crypto conference was last year at Eat Denver. And uh, I go to Eat Denver and uh, I, I, I had gone to many academic you know, blockchain crypto conferences, but not to a kind of a real community conference, which is builders uh -huh. and, and people uh, actually building the space. And when I went there and I came back, I was telling to one of my friends at Google that, hey, you know, uh, I went to this conference and I'm back and I feel like I'm an Ethereum guy and I don't <laughs> hold a lot of ETH, okay? Mm -hmm. I've not contributed to the Ethereum protocol. I have contributed to other protocols, by the way, but not to Ethereum protocol. I've not, um, you know, um, I'm not running a DeFi app or anything on top of Ethereum, but I feel like I'm an Ethereum guy because there is this ethos that it, that I, I, I seem to share. There is this idea of credible neutrality, the idea of permissionless innovation, the idea of censorship resistance, the idea of empowering individuals to cooperate at a much higher velocity. All of these things that I share with the Ethereum community. So I'm glad to be a small part of it. Are you going to be at ETH Denver this year? Yes. Same. Hey, I'll be there. let's catch up there. Let's get caught. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, for sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have actually like a, a flywheel happy hour with a few other stablecoin. Yeah, so like more than welcome to come March 1st, 4 to 7. You heard it here first. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Anybody else uh, showing up there, please stop by and say hi. I'll also come by. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, Kit, did you have more questions? Yeah, I, I have a very basic one. Like we talk about slashing literally probably 80 times that word has been mentioned. But like, how does that actually work? When that ETH gets slashed, does it just get sent to the, you know, 0x, 0 burn address? Or does it get, uh, you know, oh, I know. redistributed? I know. I, know how I looked into this. So like 50% of ETH is already staked in uh, like ETH staking. And the other 50% is for like withdrawal. And like the limit of like what mm -hmm. can be staked is 50%. So like the other 50% right. is the, uh, you know, 
the ones that are being restaked per se, and they basically get withdrawal rights to that ETH. Is that right? Yeah, so that's one part of the uh, thing. But even that 50%, maybe, you know, so one question is how much can we slash? Can we slash 100% of ETH or can we slash 50% of ETH? That's one one question on the trade-off. But there's also this other point, which is what do we do with the slashed ETH? And mm. there are two two models on Eigenlayer. On, on day one, we're launching with a simple model, which is, you know, slashed ETH is just burnt, let's say. But wow. the eventual model is that the slashed ETH can be used as an insurance bond for the services. And this is a model that we're developing in, in close detail. The idea that, you know, when, uh, when a service is impacted, you know, imagine I'm running a bridge, right, from somewhere else, from Cosmos to Ethereum or something. And mm. this bridge... Uh, you know, allowed a certain bunch of transactions because some like eigenlayer restakers on that bridge validation service said that something is correct. And actually they were, it turns out they were malicious and they had reported a wrong state. And now my bridge is screwed because I like spent somebody else's money, right? So it's a really right, bad right, situation. Right. And, you know, there is no protection for things like this in any system today because there is no working system of, you know, I call it a working system of karma, Right. Like there is no way that I can actually when I'm slashing the guy who's doing the bad thing, I should be able to take it and give it to the guy who was harmed. Did the good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we need the full completion of the karma loop. And like that's what the the V2 that we are building is basically around this concept of insurance bonds where services prepay for the the right to acquire a certain amount of slashing. And, you know, this is this is very important, especially when you have fully shared security. Let's say all the 25 billion of ETH is restaked on Eigenlayer and on like, you know, 10 different services. Now, you know, each service can slash um, and uh, a, a, can a, a, each service does not have, it, it, it could happen that all the ETH stakers misbehave and uh, affect a whole host of services. And what you need is a guarantee from the service point of view that if anything ha bad happens to my service, I'm at least guaranteed an X amount of insurance bond. And what you have to do is you have to prepay for the right to acquire that insurance bond. So I, I'm saying, oh, I'm running a bridge. I have a $1 billion insurance bond with Eigenlayer. And what it means is as long as I make sure that my bridge is not transacting more than $1 billion within the event horizon, essentially you have unconditional security for your bridge because whatever happens you will be able to get one billion dollar and if either the service right, is correct coverage. or yeah. the service broken then you'd get back the one billion dollar and if you get back the one billion dollar you can distribute it to the users who transacted less than that yeah. so again going back to this idea that what we are securing is not the total value of the system but the total value that is in flight during the kind of attack time so that is really what the right mental model is for building this. That's a very attractive proposition right there. And that's just for bridges. That's even for like, I think of like liquidation production and like, let's say you build on something like on Eigenlayer, like I will automatically like pull out your collateral if you get close to the liquidation threshold. And for some reason it doesn't pull, like you have that insurance coverage to cover you. That's right. Yeah. What do you think, Kit? No, I... I... That's such a good way of using the slashed ETH. And 
it's it's much better than just burning it. Because when you first told me the the current method is to burn it, I was like, you're just gonna burn precious ETH. I was like, ultrasound oh, money. I, I was like, this is an ultra ultra ultrasound money. Oh yeah. man, it's like, uh, I mean, first if, if you were to stake your ETH, you, you already love Ethereum. Now you're willing to straight up burn your ETH and put it at risk. You yeah. really love Ethereum. <laughs> really deflationary. <laughs> okay, okay. I said burn, but actually the way we wrote the yeah. contracts is the ETH is frozen. Unless there is any mm. governance upgrade, you just like can't touch it. Nobody can. Touch oh, it. Uh, oh, so it could be. So it's could a, be retrieved. You know, we don't. We want. We've just. We are very, very paranoid. So we've built a lot of backstops into the protocol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially for V one. Yeah, that makes a ton of like. Now I, I'm just wondering if, what kind of keeps you up at night, Shuram, as as you're kind of building this really critical infrastructure middleware layer that like if this were to get massive adoption it's middleware like, facilitator yeah yeah you are the middlewares for all middlewares like so what keeps you up at night like what what makes you worried waking up sweating <laughs> a nightmare would be that you know there is some security issue in eigenlayer especially i think we are responsible as a uh to to try to build the smart contracts as securely as possible. That's one one of the most important things. So we've put in a lot of like, you know, protections. I think these should be standard, but for example, every withdrawal on Eigenlayer has a one week lag. Mm. And the reason is that, you know, it gives enough time. It's a human time scale to do monitor and, you know, uh, take actions. If there was some problem with the withdrawal flow, you know, there is, um, so one of the nice things about Eigenlayer is that staking is a slow time scale activity. Staking is not like, you know, bridging or other things where you are like, oh my God, what's happening, right? Like you don't need to worry about it at that time scale. You are in it for the longer haul. So that gives us like the freedom to do some of these things. But that's the thing I'd be most worried about is mostly just like erroneous code and trying to minimize the possibility of erroneous code. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I talked to some some DeFi founders and obviously once the TVL starts climbing, like they're just hoping just like you, right? Hopefully there's no vulnerability in the code. And I'm like, if they're sweating for just a couple hundred million, you know, in TVL, I wonder how you would feel when you have a couple billions <laughs> at all times just running. And not only that, right, you're, I, I would argue, even more at risk because all these middlewares are powering so many other things in the ecosystem, so it's like you really want to make the, them sweat, right? <laughs> yeah, I was like, you are the base of this super complicated Jenga puzzle, <laughs> right? That anybody that, that a lot of attackers, frankly, want to attack. So you know, I was just curious to hear what was uh, keeping you up at night. That's what's keeping me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm gonna go with a lighter tone. Um, so, like, you know, few years down the line, Iking Layer, you know, fully launched. You know, the marketplace is blossoming. Everyone's connecting and outsourcing their trust to Eigenlayer. Um, what is like the ultimate, like, bull case dream for Eigenlayer? Like, what does the ideal world look like? Like, that meme of like, you know, solar punk, like, this is the world if the world is, you know, secured by Eigenlayer. Like, what does that look like to you? Um, we are starting with restaking, but that's mm -hmm. not the kind of Ooh. goal of Eigenlayer. Goal of Eigenlayer is to maximize the surface area of open innovation, the surface area of permissionless innovation. I think we're just getting started as a community in this area. 
um, imagine, um, you know, uh, there are many, many directions in which this could go. These are all just, uh, you know, uh, dreams, let's say for now. But uh, the idea that you, you know, that when you're building, let's say, software, when you're building media, when you're building, you know, maybe neosynthetic uh, genomes, whatever crazy thing you're doing, the thing that drives all of it is innovation. And what we want is to maximize the service area of permissionless innovation. And how, how, what does blockchain have anything to do with it? It's mechanism design, really. And the idea that like when I come and create something new, and if somebody else, like let's take media as a concrete example, I come and create some new innovation. Now, somebody else wants to create a derivative on top of my innovation, right? There are really two models today. One is the permission model. Like I'm Disney, you know, you need to know me, you need to call me and talk to me before you can create anything on top of my products, right? So that's one model. The benefit of this model is there is incentives for Disney, like, you know, for the creator to have some value out of it. The downside of it is it's extremely permissioned, right? Like, so this is the permissioned uh uh, innovation model. There is the Creative Commons model. I create something and put it up in Creative Commons and let anybody build on top of it. But there is no real incentive other than just contributing to common good, right? And an ideal system would basically have, you know, permissionless innovation license, which is basically I create an idea and I create a media and put it up and somebody else can create derivatives on top of this idea and they get the additional value that they've created related to my base unit. And you need like economics and game theory to evaluate this additional units of value. So this is one example of where I think, you know, permissionless innovation is very important. And we want to build some of the Lego blocks that will help, you know, do these kind of things. So eigenlayer starting point, we're doing restaking, and then there is a bunch of stuff to be built on top. But the long range goal is if we accelerate the rate at which innovation happens through society. So that's what we, that would be our solar punk dream. Beautiful. Yeah. I think, that's, I think that's a good sad. note. I think it's a good note to end off on like that positive oh. vision looking for, unless you wanted to ask one more thing. I have, I have one uh, last question. It is a very frankly easy question and you know, mm-hmm. you'll probably be able to answer in like half a second. Um, will Eigenlayer have a token? <laughs> Half seconds over. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, at at the end of all of these uh, podcasts, we like to ask some you know lightning round questions just to kind of get to know you better as like a, a, a person. Um, and I usually like to start out with, what was your virgin crypto experience? When did you first touch the blockchain? And sex don't count. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, it's, a, it's a weird thing. The first time we, I touched a blockchain is when we built one. So <laughs> we built this protocol called Prism. And, you know, I never touched the application layer. We only know the infrastructure layer. So we start there and we just like code <laughs> up a blockchain and then we touch it. So that's the first time I touched Wow. It. So you like built the plumbing first. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's that's actually the best answer I've heard. Like you, I didn't touch the blockchain. I just built one. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> very cool. Uh, all right, second question: What is your favorite uh, off-chain touch grass activity? 
what are some hobbies and interests of yours? Um, I have two kids, uh, you know, old five and three. So most wow. of the off-chain activity is, you know, playing with them, taking them <laughs> to the parks, you know, going on hikes. Yeah. That's a wholesome answer. <laughs> so wholesome. Uh, what would be some advice you'd give to your younger self? It's important to spend time to acquire the right mental models on how things work. And uh, it's it's almost like at, at, at the root node of everything else is the models on how various things in the world work. If you want to be effective at it, I would have learned, for example, economics much younger. And uh, that mm-hmm. would be an advice. That is the best advice I've heard for that answer. Thank you for that. It was so cerebral. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to really think about that one after this one. And then the last question to kind of end it off here is, um, if you weren't in crypto and weren't in academics, what would your professional career be? Uh from my childhood, I've always wanted to be a professor. So I, I don't have a good answer for that. I, He's living the dream. You're already there. You're, I, you, really, there's nothing else. You don't want to yeah. be a magician. You don't want to be... It, it's funny because when, when you first asked them about, you know, like, oh, like, how'd you end up here? And I, I was thinking, and he gave his answer. I was thinking, like, this is his answer already for, like, the final lightning round answer. It's like being yeah. a professor. Like, I was like, I knew this would be it. <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah, I felt yeah. so too. That's why that's, that's why I said no academics, and I really wanted to push you to see like, yeah. come on, you, there, there must be because something. You I feel to like stream, you like you had like this career like full steam ahead in academia, in biology, and that was it. It wasn't just like you hopped over to blockchain. It was like more of just like it kind of like you had like full steam ahead in one area, and then like this other came came along, and you kind of just like were so pulled to it that you like get kind of put the other the first career down for this one. That's right. And because always uh, my uh, goals and values have been similar is to contribute to knowledge. And I think it's just one level of, you know, went one level meta is how to let other people contribute more to knowledge and innovation. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what crypto is to me. Amen to that. Well, Sareem, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, This was a real fun episode. Um, Make sure you stay on. Uh, because we have to like have the video upload. <laughs> but, thank uh, you so much, yeah, Dave. Thank, thank you, you Kate. Really, really appreciate being on this live in part. Really enjoyed talking to both of you and look forward to a different chat at a different time. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, man. Thank you, everyone, for watching this episode of Flywheel DeFi. We had on Shiram of Eigenlayer. Uh, Kit, fine. Actually, no. We'll save the, the final thoughts for the post game. Make sure you go down below to the Substack, subscribe, and we'll have it all there. Um, if you want to like, keep up with everything Flywheel, don't forget, hit that bell button, subscribe to us on YouTube, let us know what you think in the comments. Flywheel DeFi, Twitter, Telegram, join, follow. Follow me on Twitter, DeFiDave22. Follow me at 0xCapital underscore K. And we'll see you next week. Go to the post game. Post game, post game, post game. Post game, post game. <laughs> okay. Everything said in this episode is not financial or tax advice. This channel is strictly for educational purposes 
and it's not an investment advice or solicitation to buy or sell any assets or to make any financial decisions. This video is not tax advice whatsoever. Please talk to your accountant and do your own research.